Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review Books podcast, done with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In August, AOC took to Twitter to complain about how U.S. rules are holding back local sunscreens compared to the rest of the world. And while she didn't name any specific country, the video featured headlines that did name one nation, South Korea. On social media, at least, Korean cosmetics are now seen as among the world's best. But where did this success come from? And perhaps what does it say about South Korea? Elise Hu, during her time in South Korea, tried to find out, researching and reporting on not just the cosmetics industry, but gender politics, the culture of lookism, K-pop, and cosmetic surgery, all covered in her latest book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Elise Hugh is a correspondent and host at large for NPR, the American News Network, and since April 2020, the inaugural host of TED Talks Daily, the daily podcast from TED that's downloaded a million times a day in all countries of the world. For nearly four years, she was the NPR bureau chief responsible for coverage in North Korea, South Korea, and Japan. Today, Elise and I talk about South Korea, its world-leading cosmetics industry, and what that says about gender and lookism in this buzzing East Asian economy. So, Elise... Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, you know, I want to start with this premise that kind of definitely popped up on you know Western social media, at least it feels like over the past year, which is that Korean cosmetics really are just better than anything else, certainly compared to what's available in the U.S. Uh, I guess in terms of you know, is is that true? And when we talk about it being kind of on the cutting edge, what does that really mean? Well, thank you so much for having me and. Better is always a really difficult, <laughs> difficult metric to try and quantify. But South Korea has become one of the world's leading exporters when it comes to cosmetics and cosmetic tools like wands and lights and a lot of the machinery that you might see lasers, you know, at derm spas or med spas. So In a lot of ways, because the industry in South Korea is so competitive domestically, what I found was that in order to compete domestically successfully, South Korea's products became so rigorously tested and and so innovative that, and in some cases advanced when it came to formulations and ingredients, that those products and procedures were able to compete on a worldwide scale. So the export value of South Korea's cosmetics has now eclipsed the country's exports of smartphones and home appliances, which is wild because when you think of South Korea or when I thought of South Korea 10 years ago when I was getting posted to Seoul, I thought of LG and its TVs or appliances. I thought of Samsung and its phones. But now it's actually South Korean cosmetics, largely from giant conglomerates like Amore Pacific, which I write about in Flawless, um, that are really traveling all over the globe and being exported to all countries of the world. So how's the industry get its start? I mean, you mentioned kind of Amore Pacific. I mean, these are, um, these aren't, I think, new, new companies, I believe. Um, Yeah. No, right. Of course, right. Amore Pacific, actually, and we trace the roots of Amore Pacific, um, as I write about the history of K-beauties and and the industry. Amore Pacific actually dates to pre-Korean War, so it's kind of a post-World War II company. But For all of the years that South Korea was war-torn and then also trying to come out and kind of industrializing under the dictator Park Jong-hee, there was a lot of um, 
really internal focus and domestic focus on South Korean products. What we saw at the turn of the century was a really crucial turning point for and what made South Korean cosmetics come under this giant moniker of K-beauty as we know it today. And when I talk about K-beauty, I don't mean just cosmetics and skincare products. I also mean um, the ideals that come with it. I also mean Korean plastic surgery. Uh, Korea is the plastic surgery capital of the world. There are more cosmetic surgeons in Seoul per capita um, than there are in on other than there are in any other place on the planet, four times more than the United States. And I already assumed, I had long assumed that the U.S. had a pl plenty of plastic surgeons. So um, K-Beauty encompasses all of that to me. And it really took off at the turn of the century, the early 2000s, following the Asian financial crisis and with the growth of K-pop, K-film, K-drama, what we call the Hallyu wave or the Korean cultural wave that went around the globe. So I talk about how really you can't have the transmission of a bunch of Korean beauty products without images of Korean beauties, of actually pretty people, right? Or what's considered pretty pe people in Asia. And those pretty people and the transmission of those images really went global when YouTube first was invented in 2006, and finally you were seeing a lot of the transmission that we'd already seen regionally in Asia, like, you know, K-dramas had huge fans in Southeast Asia, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in China, in Japan. But after YouTube and really digital video, you saw K-pop and K-film and K-drama really reach other parts of the world, like Latin America, and then finally, you know, the Western world, Europe and North America. So your your book is based on your time as kind of NPR's sole bureau chief. Um, mm -hmm. And so how did your reporting kind of then push you to to write this book? I mean, were there any particular stories that after you thought, after which you thought, I should probably expand on this and write yes. and turn this into <laughs> in, in into a longer, a longer piece? Yes. And, you know, this book really marries. It's not just, you know, um, a cultural history or social commentary and journalism, it really braids a lot of memoir because it has to do with beauty ideals and the sort of insecurities or the questions that we all have and the complexities that come with looking at our reflections in the mirror. So I have really wrestled with that. And I wrestled with how I looked compared with other Asians. You know, I'm Asian American, which is distinct from um, Asian Asians, especially in Korea, because Korean women face a lot of constraints and social expectations to look a certain way. And I, as an Asian American, was able to really live outside those norms and those constraints in many ways because I could ride the foreigner pass, you know, and and I was allowed the, some forgiveness for the way I looked. But even still, you know, as a woman and as a woman who appears Asian, I really wrestled when I first landed in Seoul with just all these images of the ideal, you know, what Korean women were expected to look like, which was eternally young, long, luscious hair, perfect porcelain white skin, big eyes, usually kind of higher nose bridges than I, I would have, you know, or that I naturally have. And then, these these very feminine looking jawlines, which I later learned were often perfected 
by interventions, by surgical interventions, and then very, very, very thin women in, in general. Like the expectation for thinness was really rather astounding to me. And there was a real contradiction with what I was going through at the time, because when I landed there, I was already pregnant and I was only getting bigger you know, <laughs> through, through my first few months in South Korea. And so that kind of wrestling, my personal individual struggle is portrayed in the book and also the impetus for writing it and reporting it in a lot of ways. And then there were times along the way during the late tens that I was in Seoul, where we were really observing a feminist reckoning and an awakening by a lot of young women in South Korea. Um, there was a murder outside the Gangnam subway station in 2016, I believe. So within the first year that I was in Seoul, that was really a catalyst for a lot of women sort of speaking up and talking about the everyday sexism and the everyday violence that they faced because the murder of this woman, um, the killer admitted that he let a lot of people pass by the same space where he kind of emerged and killed her. He let a lot of people pass by who were men, but then said reportedly that I killed her. He chose his victim, quote, because she was a woman. And so there was just this outpouring. And then that was a really key moment. I covered the story, but really it was a key moment for me in trying to wrestle with the gender disparity of a country that is the 10th largest economy of the world and then so in such a cultural jugg juggernaut. And yet still women were, were really suffering under various constraints of a patriarchy. And so I examined that and then how beauty plays out and how beauty ends up being um, a tool in a lot of ways uh, in this kind of neoliberal or late capitalist moment that we're in. It was a tool for women to try and kind of come up and rise up above their class or rise up ab above their station. And in that sense, as we get into the plastic surgery part of the book, a lot of cosmetic surgery was really justified because your looks were framed as a matter of personal responsibility, such that if you didn't work hard to improve your looks, then you were seen as lazy or incapable. And so it would be natural, you know, or expected for women and increasingly men to do something about their bodies and their faces as they naturally appeared and try and improve that for the so-called market. Um, you know, I want to get into, get into that in a little bit, actually. I mean, so, I mean, and I guess my question, first of all, is going to, how do, um, Korean women feel about, feel about this pressure, um, feel about the, the culture of lookism, I think you call it. I mean, the, the women you talk to in the book, um, it's kind of simultaneously, uh, they do feel pressured by it, but also, um, they're often the ones doing a lot of the, the 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 prodding and pushing, which I know isn't like that's that's not new. I feel like that's a that that's that that's common in looking at analyses of kind of how gender plays into this. But at least from your reporting, I mean, how how did Korean women kind of feel about, um, I guess about lookism and 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 this pressure? 
It depends on whom you talk to, right? It's not a monolithic group, but a lot of the women who, the, especially the younger women, so I would say the Gen Z women who are trying to resist a lot of the standards that they have faced or their mothers or their aunties and grandmothers have faced, those women really feel oppressed, right? And they feel fatigued and they feel as though they pay a high psychological tax for not doing the work of trying to live up to whatever appearance standard is in vogue in the moment. Um, I remember a lot of them saying things to me like, we just want to exist as humans as we are and be loved as we are without the makeup, without this idea of a figurative corset, or in some cases, real corsets. You know, um, in 2018, the year that I ended up moving home because my stint was ending, there were massive protests. I don't know if you remember the coverage in Asia at the time, but women took to the streets in South Korea in numbers of 50,000 and the next rally was 60,000. And then the third one, it was 90,000 women on the streets of the South Korean capital really to protest as women's sort of consciousness and women's rights rallies, you know, to protest a whole slew of injustices that they felt. And as part of that, there was also this escape the corset movement in which Women were rejecting standards like having long hair, and so they were cutting off all their hair and rejecting standards like spending a bunch of money on makeup and plastic surgery. And so they were crushing their compacts, their makeup compacts and eyeshadows and things and and taking pictures of these crushed compacts in the trash or making videos of them wiping off all of their the, the gunk on their faces and the goop on their faces in, in a real stand to try and say, like, we want to be free of this particular beauty regime that that we're caught up in. And it's not from a direct source, right? It's not like this is a governmental regime. It's more complicated than that and more complex in that this is part of existing in a wider society and being part of commercial exchanges and being, you know, marketed to by the beauty industry. And in and and the beauty industry really operates on this idea that there is something about us that can be fixed. Like you could look better. So why don't you do this thing or buy the thing or the service necessary to look better, to fix whatever problem is in front of us? Yeah. On the flip side as well, though, I mean, you mentioned in your, your book that, um, that, that men are taking part in the cosmetic industry as well. Um, you know, I, I know it. I know in other markets, uh, was it men will only buy cosmetics if it's very clearly branded for men with like yes. big black bottles and <laughs> dude wipes, you know, right? <laughs> like bullet conditioner or something. Um, but that's not true in Korea. I mean, I think Korean men are 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 very willing to just buy all the same stuff that that women that the women yes, are buying. Younger ones are for sure. Yeah. But I think that from what I what I remember interviewing the um, beauty industry folks, they said for older Korean men, you really have to put the shampoo in what looks like whiskey bottles and make it sort of whiskey colored <laughs> and not even call it a product, you know? And so so it does vary generationally, but younger Korean men are certainly far more evolved. And just younger people all over the world really were seeing a lot more gender fluidity, of course. And um, South Korean men take a lot more care than other men in other countries when it comes to their eyebrows in particular and hair and to some extent skin. Um, South Korean men are far more consistent about using sunscreen, for example, than men in any other country. And roughly 13% of all skincare products for men in the world 
are purchased by the men of South Korea. And we have to remember that South Korea is small enough to fit in the space between Los Angeles and San Francisco. This is not a huge country, and yet <laughs> more than 10% of the world's men's skincare market um, is dominated by <laughs> or is um, the products are being purchased by South Korean men. Um, we, 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 we've talked a lot about, about cosmetics, um, but obviously uh, this, this KB industry has other facets as well, one of which is you know, K-pop, K-drama, Korean popular culture, um, which is obviously going to have grown a lot in, in, gro- in global prominence recently. Um, you know, how how does K-pop kind of figure into this culture of lookism? I mean, uh, I assume being a K-pop star is very hard. I'm sure there's lots of um, pressure and intense work that has to be done. Um, how, how, how does K-pop figure into this conversation? K-pop stars are aspirational ideals. They provide the molds that everybody wants to emulate. You know, they set trends. If you are a K-pop star and the type of lip gloss you wear gets out there, then that lip gloss will sell out. Um, RM, the lead singer of BTS, famously showed a copy, the front cover of a book he was reading, which was um, I Want to Die but I want to eat doboki, I think, <laughs> and a, a Korean book. And that book became an instant bestseller. And so K-pop stars are extremely influential. And then we have to remember that K-pop as a genre is as much a visual genre as is it, as it is a musical genre. So it's visuals, it's choreography, it's videos, um, it's stage productions are such a vital part of what K-pop is and how it's defined that how its idols look and how they appear, whether it's fashion or skin or hair or accessories, ends up getting transmitted all over the world. And it's a 24-7 billboard for K-beauty and K-beauty ideals. And they really set the standard. Um, So much of what we understand as K-beauty today and things like dewy skin, glowy skin, a skincare routine, um, the pimple patch stickers, the Laneige products that so many Gen Z Americans are using, all of that really originated in South Korea and often on the bodies and faces of K-pop idols. Um, you also talk about cosmetic surgery, and you kind of mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in reading reading Flawless, it struck me kind of how much it really seems like an industry. Um, yeah. You know, s- Cosmetic surgeons are doing certainly seems like way more operations, way more procedures, like per per week, if not per day, than U.S. Um, than the U.S. cosmetic surgeons. Um, how did that? How did that industry, I guess, grow? How did it become so um, so prominent, so leading edge, um, and I guess just so ingrained in in this culture? Some of it is through medical tourism. So, and then some of it is because of regulatory changes after the Asian financial crisis. So, after following the Asian financial crisis, which really is consequential in so many ways, as I found out in the research for Flawless, um, following the Asian financial crisis, regulatory uh, the regulatory regime in South Korea was changed to incentivize doctors for specializing and um, for 
anything that related to diagnostics. And cosmetic surgery offers both because you have diagnostic tools and then you have diagnostic services to try and diagnose a skin condition or like a nose, a deviated septum or a jawline that maybe is not great and then um, or not ideal according to the standards of the day. And then you have surgery specialists to try and solve that particular problem. And so following those regulatory changes, you had a lot of doctors become interested in specializing in surgery. However, after that happened, there was a glutted market and there were too many surgeons, too few patients. So that's when the South Korean state got involved and they began a campaign of medical tourism involving the Korean Tourism Organization and other government wings to try and lure patients, foreign patients, into South Korea for its world-leading plastic surgery district. Um, It had so many plastic surgeons who were really competitive, which then made the made them each better, right? Because this was, again, much like cosmetics. It was such a saturated market. It was so competitive domestically that it in- improved what the service was that they were providing, just as the products, the cosmetic products were improved by all the competition. So you had all of these surgeons that just needed to meet with more clients. And the South Korean government really stepped in to try and lure and offer tax breaks, offer packages. So you could come into South Korea and get a bunch of services done, but buy a package to do so such that you would have lodging. You would have concierge services for your recovery. You would have tours and excursions while you were there. You would have airport pickup. So to this day, and medical tourism ends up being so successful for South Korea that if you land at the Incheon airport in Seoul, you can, or just outside Seoul, you can, before you leave the airport, go ahead and get your skin analyzed in a machine and figure out which clinic would be best for you, depending on the various skin conditions that you may or may not have. And you mentioned that they have this like I'd call it like pseudoscience kind of thing. Was it they have oh, like right. the, the math and they like draw on. Um, but as you note, it's all done on a 2D surface. So it doesn't mm-hmm. look the same at all in 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm going to wrap this, 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 this object up. And then people say, oh, they're disappointed what it looks like in real life. But, you know, we have the science <laughs> that tells us this. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. There's a yeah. lot of like, there's a lot of, um, supply sort of leading the demand, right? And I think that happens with technology all the time. And so we, in in thinking about plastic surgery and body modification, we can really see the parallels to just tech products and devices where it's like, we have this new thing and you clearly need it because the solution exists. So I remember being stopped on the streets and strangers would point out my freckles and they would say things like, oh, freckles, you know, like, why would you still have those on your face? You could remove those. So like, we have the thing to fix this particular malady. And so therefore you must think it's a malady and you must get it removed. <laughs> And so supply searching for demand was a real theme that I found. And so is this idea that you're talking about of the the technological gaze or an artificial gaze, a machine-driven gaze in which computers and algorithms or databases are ranking the way that people look. And then the results are then influencing the things that we do to our bodies, Uh, or the way that we think about our looks. So our very beauty ideals are getting morphed 
by these algorithms and by these companies behind the software that really just wants to keep us engaged. And the cosmetic surgery clinics are all too quick and all too eager to try and resolve whatever body dysmorphia or insecurities that folks are having as a result of the digital gaze by saying, hey, we have this newfangled technology (laughs) that'll match up your looks to the algorithmically determined set of looks that you want to look like and um, show you what that gap is and help, uh, help you fix that gap. We can correct the difference between your physical meat space self and the digital idealized self that you want to be and that you see in those filters. It's really wild, but in that way, Flawless really serves as kind of a cautionary tale or a a window into a future that's already arrived in South Korea, but is likely to happen all over the rest of the developed world. Um, I mean, speaking of the rest of the developed world, I mean, I want to bring in kind of global dynamics um, for a bit. Um, you know, Korea is itself taking cues from Japan and China. Japan and China are now taking cues from South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know in China, like the the beauty filters are very popular. All the beauty apps that will automatically um, tailor your face to or, or tailor your photo of your face to align with certain particular beauty ideals. Um, right. <laughs> U.S. influencers, Western influencers are now paying attention to South Korean beauty products. Um you know, what is, how does this story about Korea's beauty industry, how does it fit into our conversation about globalization and, you know, you know, quote unquote, soft power um, when it comes to Korea? South Korea is 100%, you know, as, as a government, it, it's 100% behind this industry because it is, it has become such a massive export win for them. And then in terms of soft power, we have seen the influence of South Korea and and what an important cultural center it is over the past few years. And as you know, the state is also supportive of this. What I see with with regard to South Korea and China, the big difference there with K-beauty versus C-beauty is that Korea, because it's a smaller country, it has always been dependent on exports. It's considered the shrimp between whales of China and Japan, right? And so as a result, it's an, an imperative, an economic and cultural imperative for South Korea to export and export its culture, export its um, K-beauty. For China and the growth of sea beauty that we've seen, it's not necessary for China to or Chinese companies to really export sea beauty and make it a thing all over the world because the domestic market is big enough to support it. And really, all sea beauty has to do is edge out K beauty within Chinese borders because previously, you know, 10 or even five years ago, Chinese consumers would really go to Korea and look to Korea for Korean beauty products. And now Chinese beauty products are really on the level and just are, are contending against K-beauty products among Chinese consumers, which is all that C-beauty really needs to do. So I'm not sure if that answers kind of the bigger question about what to make of all of the transmission, but I would predict that Korea continues to be an export-focused player. It's now really focusing on the Latin American market in the Southeast Asian market to replace China because those Chinese consumers aren't going to Korea in droves for makeup anymore. Um, And then we're going to watch Japan remain, you know, steady. Japan obviously has some major cosmetics leaders like Shiseido. Um, 
and then China really continue to focus on its domestic market. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to kind of end uh, with maybe a, a, a personal question. Um, sure. And I mean, I, I'll, I'll fully admit I am your stereotypical dude. I have absolutely no idea what any of these products do or, or so how they work. I'm so you read the book then. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but to ask a personal question, I mean, you know, you, you, you go to Korea, um, you're there in Korea reporting and then, and then you come back. Did, did your, let's say, did, did your morning routine, did your cosmetics routine change while you were in Korea? And then when you moved back to the U S did it change back again? Did it change something else? How, how, how did your routine change when you kind of moved back and forth between these, between these different countries? I tell you what, but for Korea, I wouldn't have had a routine. You know, like I was never somebody who was very into skincare or having multiple steps to a skincare routine. Not even, not not necessarily for beautifying. There's some people who have beauty routines just to relax, right? To take good care of their bodies and their skin. And I didn't even do that. You know, I'm rather uh, a chaos Muppet, I guess you could describe me as. And so I didn't have much of a routine at all. Um, And in South Korea, that really changed because after I had my second daughter there, I had a bunch of downtime at home. And so that was when I really experimented with all of these world-leading skincare products that I was told about. And so I tried a lot of things out. I found some products that I liked and I continue to be um, devoted to. But the real tangible change in my in the way that I care for my skin as a result of the reporting for Flawless is sunscreen, which is what you started this episode with. I have become militant about sunscreen and wearing it every day and not just when I go out to the beach or go into the pool. I'm really good about wearing sunscreen every day um, because we are exposed to UV rays constantly. And I often wear Korean sunscreens um, because in a lot of ways, their formulations are more advanced and better than the United States sunscreens that are offered and then often cheaper as well. And then I'm also militant about making sure my kids are wearing sunscreen and they're protecting their precious skin. And so that is a big change. And then also I was really struck by, you know, how common and 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 this was really lovely how common it was for Koreans to go and get facials rather regularly, you know, in the way that it was like regular, it was a routine, just like exercise is a routine. And so I have tried to incorporate going to get facials more and I do it in Koreatown where it is relatively affordable so so that um, I can have that time, like that that me time and I can feel that nurturing touch of a beauty worker. So that is another way that I've kind of been influenced or changed since coming home. Um, well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Elise Hugh, author of Flawless Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Elise, I actually have two final questions for you, okay. um, which are, uh, first of all, where can people find your work? I know there's a lot of it, <laughs> but where can people <laughs> find your work? And uh, what's next for Not you? A- what do you think the next project might be? Well, the answer is not on Twitter anymore. Uh, (laughs) No, you can find all my work at EliseHugh.com and it's E-L-I-S-E-H-U.com. And then that will connect you to where you can contact me and my various social feeds. And uh, you can sign up for my newsletter. I keep a newsletter that's free of my random links that I like to read and other ephemera and recommendations. My next project, well, I don't know how much I can say about it yet, but 
I am working on two different movie projects, actually, that jump off from Flawless and some of the ideas of Flawless. One is fictional, so one is feature film, and then the other is more documentary. And so stay tuned about that. I will stay tuned about that. Uh, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, still on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow them on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Scott Seligman, author of Murder in Manchuria, the true story of a Jewish virtuoso, Russian fascist, a French diplomat, and a Japanese spy in occupied China. But before then, Elise, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Nick. It was a delight.